you know, as we get into the sermon today, talking about gifts, unique gifts, you know, a lot of times we use the word gifts to describe something like we talked last week that are really skills and abilities. Abilities being something that, that you're born with, something innate within you that you can develop and grow in, and a skill being something you can learn and develop and grow in. Uh, like we talked last week about an ability being like the ability to sing. Some people are born with that ability. Some people are not. Some of you are sitting next to somebody who does not have that ability, and you're being very resistant to nudge them at the moment. But you can, <laughs> some of you are laughing because you know, uh, you can develop that and get better. Some have a skill that you can learn how to do something, and you can get better in that. But a spiritual gift comes from the Holy Spirit. It is unique and powerful in a different way. And a lot of times what we end up doing is we sometimes will refer to a, a skill or an ability like it's a gift, like it's a gift. And we're defining these terms. I'm not saying you can't say it that way, but we're defining these terms in the way that Scripture uses the phrase gift, a spiritual gift, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings unique spiritual gifts. And today I'm gonna, we're going to walk through, actually, later on in the message, every spiritual gift is listed in Scripture, and we're going to look at those. Um, but in doing that, I was thinking about um, someone uh, who had, and I guess you'd call it a skill and an ability. Uh, a, a, he had a prerogative for something, and it developed into a skill that developed even more. That he was called gifted, and it's a very unique young man. Um, but does anybody like basketball? Okay, y'all are sanctified. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I got one laugh out of my joke. Stephanie's one of my favorites. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I've always loved basketball. When I was a little kid, I wanted to grow up and be an NBA player and an astronaut. Uh, neither one of those happened. It's not that far outlandish, Jose. <laughs> he raised his eyebrows. Uh, uh, although I'm too, I did discover, I, this is my excuse for not being an astronaut. I'm too tall to be an astronaut. Because when you go to outer space, your spine expands, and you, have to, you can't be above six foot four. Uh, so that's my excuse. That's why I said, I, NASA said no. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so anyway, back to basketball. Well, there's a young man in basketball who changed the way the game was played. Uh, and he played years and years ago. He was in the NBA from 1970 to 1980. And before that, he played for LSU for four years. Uh, and before that, where he really changed basketball was high school because basketball was always played the same way. Uh, you dribbled, you shot, you passed. There was no fancy stuff. There was no quick movements. There was nothing. It was just dribble, normal dribble with the hand you're strong with, normal pass, uh, usually a chest pass, almost never a bounce pass, and you shot. And you shot from just little places around the thing because back then there wasn't a three-point line. Well, this kid comes in, and some of you may recognize his name. His name's Pete Maravich. Anybody ever heard of Pete Maravich? I'll tell you why. So you know if you raise your hand. He, he forever changed the game. Because when he came in, his dad was the basketball coach at LSU. And Pete Maravich came into the game as a middle school kid and then as a high school kid, and he was passing behind the back. He's dribbling between his legs. He's passing behind his head, and the kids on his team don't know what to do with this. I mean, they're getting smacked in the face with the ball because they don't know it's coming because they've never seen somebody pass the ball behind their head. He's shooting the ball from just past half court and making it, swishing the bucket. They've never seen anybody do this. 
This kid's doing stuff that is outlandish and crazy, and they're telling him to stop. They're saying, this is not how basketball is played. You do not do this. You, you stick to dribbling regularly. You stick to shooting the ball up close. You, you stick to passing it normally. Not, you know, I'm using that on purpose. Norm, the, you pass in the regular way. You're passing in a weird way. You don't do that. Well, his dad encouraged him to continue to do what was built in him, even though it was weird, even though people made fun of him, even though people were screaming for him to stop. Don't do that anymore. Well, his high school coach did not, was uncomfortable with him doing this. He respected his dad because his dad was coach at LSU, but he was uncomfortable with the way he was playing until he started putting him in and they started winning. And then the weird way became okay because they were winning. And they were winning by a lot. They, he got, uh, a reporter finally came to the game and was trying to figure out why is this team winning so much and by such big margins. And he wrote about this kid, Pete Maravich, and he gave him the nickname Pistol Pete because they said he could move his hands so fast it was like a gunfighter. He would just move them so quickly all over the court. And he got named that in high school, and it stuck with him on through the NBA. Well, let me tell you about old Pistol Pete Maravich. When he got to college, he changed, I mean, when the national stage got to see how he played basketball, that's when everything changed. Because, okay, I had to look all this up. Back then, there were rules about how often a freshman could play. They were only allowed to play three quarters uh, of, of a four-quarter game. They weren't allowed to play more than that. Uh, and so he really only played full games once he became a sophomore, junior, and senior. Uh, was, and he was on varsity at that point. Um, they limited ha what players could be on varsity, and there were no three-point lines. But there are several NCAA records that are still held by Pete Maravich today. He still has, having only played three years full games, he still has the all-time highest scoring record. Like he, nobody has scored more points in an NCAA career than Pete Maravich. It's something like 3,600 points, and they didn't have three-pointers back then. He also holds the most points per game average over a career and over a season, which is uh, 44. It's 44.2 over career, 44.5 over a season, which they, there's somebody went back and watched all his games and said that if the three-point line existed, his points per game average would be 57 points, which is nuts. For a, team that, for a guy that did not have a three-point, would go out there and, and do all this stuff and play in crazy ways. Then he goes into the NBA, and three different teams in the NBA today have his number retired because he changed the game. He's also the youngest player to ever be inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame because he changed the game forever. And Hall of Famers will say, I, I read an interview, and they were saying, all of them were saying, he is the one, he is the... He is the one-of-a-kind, uh, all-time innovator in basketball who changed the way the game was done. There's no one like him. There would have been no Michael Jordan without Pete Maravich. There would have been no LeBron without Pete Maravich. There would have been no Steve Nash without Pete Maravich. There would have been none of these guys who were phenomenal ball handlers without this one kid who was one-of-a-kind, whose father encouraged him to use how, he, how his ability was even though everybody else said it was weird and stop it. But because he did that, because he was one of a kind, he forever changed the way this national sport was done. 
Pete Maravich. There's a movie out about his life. He became a Christian later on in his life. His name was Pistol Pete. I had a coach back in the day who said, if you want to be good at basketball, you watch that movie, do everything he did. Uh, he was dribbling the ball in his house. He would sleep with his basketball and, you know, dribbling the ball in the house. That didn't last very long in my house. But um, uh, it's a phenomenal guy, phenomenal guy. Uh, and so he was one of a kind. And what we're going to see today in the Scripture is that the way God has gifted each of us in a unique way, it makes all of us one of a kind. Even if we have the exact same gift, you're one of a kind. I'm one of a kind. We're not the same. And God designed it that way specifically for a purpose. So open your scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's on page 959. If you can use a Bible on the rack. Uh, but all the notes are also on our website. Uh, church slash live if you're watching online or Dequeen.church slash Sunday if you're here in the room. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul spends a significant amount of his time writing to this church in Corinth about spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. And we began to look at that last week, about how there's different gifts, but the same Holy Spirit passed them out to every single believer, every single Christian. And so right here in First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12, let's see how he continues. He gives us an illustration of what this is supposed to look like. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. So every believer has the one and the same Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. The same Spirit that was in Genesis 1 is in all of us who believe in Jesus. It says we are all baptized into one body. We are all unified as one part of the same group, same organization, followers of Jesus, Christians, the church. And he gives a definition, he, he defines it in a way for those first century crowd, Jews and Greeks, People who uh, were, you know, uh, nation, their nationality was Jewish or their nationality was non-Jewish, so Jews or Greeks, whether they were slaves or free. And slavery back then was, was, even though it is today, there's more slavery in the world today than it's ever been in the history of the world. Uh, it was an accepted part of their culture um, in a way. Not sim it's not in the same way that slavery was in American history. Slavery was different for the Roman world uh, a little bit. But a lot of the, the people, many, some historians say the vast majority of uh, the people who lived in the Roman world were slaves. And so he says, whether you're a Jew, you're a Greek, whether you're a slave or you're a free person, if you believe in Jesus, you have the same spirit. No matter what classification culture is put on you, no matter what financial bracket you fall in, the spirit doesn't distinguish between any of that. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit, the same spirit. Verse 14, he's going to continue with this illustration. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less any part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Jump back up there to verse 18. Look at that. 
God arranged the members in the body, each one as he chose. God arranged. God arranged. That word literally means arranged. It literally means he made. God made the body parts, each one of them in the body, just as he planned. Just as he planned it, God made you the way you are. God gifted you the way you are and designed your gift just for you for a specific purpose. And so there's all these different body parts and one body, one unified body, one body, which is the, the body of Christ, the believers, Christians, uh, and, and he has gifted all of us differently for different purposes. My finger doesn't have the same purpose as my ear. The same way you don't have the same purpose as me. They're unified in that they're supposed to help me, the one, the, the owner of the body, survive and thrive and grow. But how they do that is different. My finger can't be an ear. It can't. It may try, but it doesn't work that way. It, it does. My, my ear cannot be a finger. Maybe, maybe you're really talented in your ear moving ability and you can pick things up with your ear. And if you can... Let me be your agent, and we'll go on Good Morning America tomorrow. Uh, but a finger cannot be an ear, and an ear cannot be a finger, and that's the illustration he's giving. An eye cannot be an ear, a foot cannot be a hand. That's not the way that the body is made. In the same way, we each have different gifts, and they're not designed the same. They're not supposed to be the same. And no one part of the body can do the job of all the other parts of the body. They were designed to be different. I remember an old movie uh, about a, a Little League baseball team, and they were terrible. But they got this one kid who was awesome. And so the coach told that one kid, you play everybody else's position. And so that one kid's running around the outfield, catching all the balls. That one kid's catching the ball, running to the base. And it's terrible. It, does, it ends up not working, ultimately. We're not designed to be that way. We're designed, as, as Paul writes, we're designed to function in the way God designed us. You're supposed to function with your gifts like God designed you to. And the same way I'm supposed to function with my gifts the way I'm designed to. We're not supposed to do all the same jobs as somebody else. But we're also, we'll get to that point in a minute. I almost jumped ahead, gave you a sneak preview. I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. It'll be on the screen if you haven't turned there, just don't want to. <laughs> or if you're watching online, it'll be below me on the, on the display there. Uh, but Acts chapter 6, this spiritual gifts thing isn't a, a, a new idea that Paul is introducing in 1 Corinthians. This was an understanding among Jesus and his followers. And so in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see an example where the disciples of Jesus, the, the 12 disciples, were living out and using their spiritual gifts, but a need arose, and they need some other people to step up and use their spiritual gifts. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, let me give you some backstory real quick if you don't know what this, these big old fat words mean. Uh, Hebrews, that's the Jews who have become Christians in this context. Hellenists, that, that's a word that was used for people who uh, were, were in the Greek culture but were Christians in the church uh, here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. So you have Christians who are Greek, you have Christians who are Jewish, and every day it says they're the widows being neglected in the daily distribution. So that what they would do is they would take uh, food and, and financial help and pass it out to these widows in first century, the, the widows weren't allowed to work. 
They weren't allowed to, to go out and make money. And, and so the only way they could do that is if they had family to do that, to, to help them in that process. But those who did not have family who would do their jobs and help, those who did not have family who would help in the process, the church would take it upon themselves to help, help the need, help take care of the need. Well, in the process of doing that, the, the, the Greek widows were not being taken care of. And so this complaint rose up, this division, this frustration and, and irritation. And it got to the point that the 12 disciples hear about this. And now you've got to understand, too, this isn't a church of the size of anybody in Queen. okay? This is, a, this is a massive, mega, beyond mega church. They go from a church in one day at the day of Pentecost. They started the day with like 120 members. They ended the day with over 2,000 members. That's massive growth. And the scripture says every single day, those 2,120 were out telling more people about Jesus. So they're replicating hand over fist every single day people are getting saved. So the church has grown to astronomical proportions. And so we're not talking about two or three complaints here. We're talking about hundreds, okay? And so this issue comes up, and the 12 come in to decide. Verse 2, these are the 12 apostles. Matthew, uh, you know, like Matthew and, and Titus, or not Titus, Timothy and uh, John and James and these guys. Therefore, the brother, or, or verse 2, the 12 were summoned, the full number of the disciples, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Now, you understand a little bit what's going on there as well. So those thousands of people are putting those expectations on these 12 guys. And saying, you fix it. And they're saying in that sentence, I mean, this is a pretty bold statement here. They're saying, we have been called and gifted by God to do this, to preach the word. And he's, they're going to say in a minute, too, prayer, prayer and the ministry of the word. That is the preaching of the word and how it's used in the original language. Um, and in order to do what needs to be done, is, they're not saying the need is, is less than. They're saying this is a very important need. That's why they're bringing it up. This is a very important need. But in order to fulfill, if we were to fulfill this need, we would have to neglect what God has gifted us to do and what he has called us to do. And so they're saying we need help. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we all appoint to this duty. Now, I want you to notice something. Leave that verse up there for a sec. Pick out some guys who have a good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Do these seven guys in, in the job requirement there for what they're stepping up to do, do you see anything in there that says they have to be good at, at handling complaints? Do they have to have experience in, in dealing with dis food, food distribution? Do they have to have it come from a job that describes this and so they can only, if they've had this job, that's the only way they can serve in the church? No. The definition for this is full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. You can teach that other stuff, but if you put somebody in a role, specifically in the church, to do something for the Lord, and they're not full of the Spirit, you're going to end up with all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. Yeah, but they got this on their resume. Yeah, but they're the CEO of that. Yeah, but they're really good at this. But if they're not full of the Spirit, it's going to create division every single time. Every single time. And so that's why the, the, the disciples here come out and give it this. They've got to be full of the Spirit. They've got, this is absolute, that's why we put that as one of our requirements for nominating people to the leadership team. They've got to be full of the Spirit. Don't tell me they got a CPA and they've got, a, if they're not full of the Spirit, 
then they're going to create division and, and break the church in half. Full of the Spirit, requirement number one. This is whom we will appoint to this duty. He says this duty, this job, this responsibility, they've got to be full of the Spirit. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They knew what they were called to do. They knew what they were gifted to do. And they were not willing to compromise. Right here at the beginning of the church, they're not willing to compromise on their gifting. Look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose. Here's the seven guys. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. How would you like that to be your obituary one day? You know, they list out all the stuff, all the stuff you did, how great you were. You remember here, you did that, this, that, and the other thing. But if those few words were it, I don't know about you, but I'd be happy. <laughs> full, of the, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. If that can be said of us, describing us. And that's the first one they mentioned, Stephen. He's full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And here these other seven, the other six guys are the same. Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And you know what all those other guys have in common? None of those names are Jewish names. And who are they supposed to be helping to take care of? The non-Jews, because they're being neglected. And so they choose out these seven guys who are full of the Spirit. And they set these seven before the apostles, kind of for their approval. And they prayed and laid hands on them. So they, they pray over them, commissioning them for this purpose. And so look at what happens as a result of them putting forth people full of the Spirit to fulfill their own gifting and calling. Verse 7, the word of the Lord continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the what? Priests became obedient to the faith. Some of the, probably some of the very guys who voted to kill Jesus get saved. Before this, no, it doesn't say that. It says it here. Now that they've stepped forward into their calling, into their gifting, we see that some of those guys get saved. Imagine how that racked or, or, or shook up the temple. How that messed with that high priest who was so anti-Jesus that some of his guys are now getting saved are stepping out in faith, following Jesus. But I want you to go back. I want to point something out to you that, that I had never noticed before. Maybe you did. Back up in verse 2. When the, the 12 disciples are saying, uh, it is not right that we should give up our gifting, our calling in order to do this other thing. It is not right. You know, that word literally means pleasing. So they're saying, it is not pleasing that we should give up how we're gifted. It's not pleasing that we should neglect what God has called us to do. It is not pleasing to God that we would step out and do something that would make us neglect where God has placed us. It's not pleasing that we neglect it, that we leave it behind in order to do this other thing. But again, notice, they're not saying that serving the tables and taking care of those people was a bad thing. They're not even saying that it was less than what they were doing. They were just saying, God called us to do this. God's called somebody else to do that. We need people to step up and do that thing. Otherwise, we're neglecting the thing God put us to do. We need help. And they were, what really stands out to me, they are so self-aware that they knew this was my gifting. This is where I'm at. We need, some, they're saying this thing over here is so important that we need people to step up and do it. They're not being self-delusional. 
They're self-aware of who they are and who God made them to be, but they also don't try to force someone else's gift onto themselves. They're also trying not, they don't force their gifts on somebody else and expect, well, if God called me to do this, that must mean God's gifted them to do that, and they're not living out what God has gifted them to do, so they're failing, even though I may not know how God's gifted that person. I'm just making an assumption and an expectation that's not realistic and not biblical. They're calling forward and saying, who is gifted in this? Who is gifted in this? We need to be who God made us to be. And don't try to be who God made somebody else to be. But also don't try to make somebody else be what God did not make them to be. In the unity of using how God has, has put these gifts in people brings out, the, I mean, the unity, but also great multiplication. That's the word used there. The church was, didn't grow by addition. He said it grew by multiplication as a result. Of this. And I can tell you, Micah knows it too, there's a lot of things that, that occupy our time that have nothing to do with what God's gifted us to do. We need help with Children's Church. Micah's got like 10,000 things on his list that he needs help with that he's not gifted to do, but are important and need to be done. Our, our digital media, I spend a lot of time with that because it's important. And we need somebody to take over that. We need somebody in charge of that who can help find people, and, it's, and we can train you and organize and show you how it's done, but it's vitally important. We have three times as many people watching and engaging online as who are here physically in the room any given week. It's vitally important, and who would have known when we started that almost six years ago that that, you know, for three months was the only way we did church service this year. Somebody pointed that out to me a few months ago. Who knew God was pre preparing us for that six years ago for this moment? We need somebody to do that. Not because it's beneath us. I mean, absolutely not. But so that we can better focus on what God's called us to do. Just as he's gifted you and called you to do something. Specifically designed for you. Now, your gifting doesn't necessarily have to line up with how you serve on a Sunday morning. It doesn't. Your gifting is meant to be used. Every, we're going to talk about this later on in the series. I'm jumping in. I'm jumping two weeks ahead, but you're going to get it now. Your gifting is meant to be used every single day in your home, with your family, with your friends, at your job, online, at church. Your gifting is meant to be put out everywhere. Your gifting doesn't have to line up with how you serve on a Sunday morning. I don't know anybody who's got the spiritual gift of setting out coffee, but it needs to be done. Somebody who's got the spiritual gift of unlocking the doors, which we got some great guys who do that. But it's a point of service that needs to be done so people can come in and hear the gospel. We got some great guys out there who... who come up during the week when they have another job and they get a break and they power wash the sidewalks so that somebody who pulls up doesn't say, oh, they got dirty sidewalks, I'm not coming to church. Just removing one more obstacle from somebody arguing in their mind from walking in the door. Who, who brings a, <laughs> a blower to church with them on Sunday so they can blow the grass out of the doorways. Points of service all over the place. Your gifting doesn't have to line up with how you serve on Sundays. Serving on Sundays is just another opportunity to point people to Jesus, which we're all supposed to do. Jesus spoke it in Matthew 28. Jesus spoke it in Acts chapter 1. Be my witnesses, make disciples. And this is a way we can, we can further that cause, further that purpose, because any given Sunday could be somebody's first Sunday. We had somebody come to church one time who, who told me later they were arguing with God in their car that if they took one step into this building and did not see somebody they know, they were going to leave. And so they took one step into the building, and who did they see first? One of their oldest friends in the world. And she told me, 
That was God saying, this is where I needed to be. People are looking for reasons not to follow the Lord. And so what, all we're trying to do is remove those obstacles. Remove those obstacles. And so we have, you say, I don't know. My gifting is, is different. And I don't know. I'm not a people person. Well, we've got all kinds of areas of service that need to be filled so that we can point as many people to Jesus as we possibly can. And if you're not serving somewhere on a Sunday morning, grab me, grab Micah. We, will, we have those places. We'll plug you in. You say, I can serve anywhere. Great. We've got places for that too. We need these, places, these opportunities. We need, this, we need this help. So I'm appealing to you. Maybe you're online. You say, I'm not at the church right now. I can't help. Hey, Kayla, put me on camera three over here. I'm talking to Paul's camera. Maybe you're at home right now, and you say, I'm at home. I'm, I'm susceptible to a virus, and I, I, my health is at risk, and I don't know how I can serve at home. You can serve digitally. we got plenty of ways. You can engage with the comments of people making comments right now on, the, on the Facebook, on YouTube. We need people engaging online. We need people manning the, the DMs, the direct messages. We need people manning that. Because I'm up, I mean, I took a moment a minute ago and texted somebody during the message because they were texting me, and, and I needed to do that. But we need somebody actively engaged in the moment because once it ends, we lose them. You can serve from there. You can serve from here. Anybody, everybody has an opportunity. Don't neglect the opportunity to serve. Just like we're not supposed to neglect our gifting, we shouldn't neglect our opportunity to serve because it's pleasing, Acts 6-2. It's pleasing to the Lord. We need to be aware of where God has placed us, aware of how God has gifted us, and not try to assume we know best about somebody else's gifting than our own. I mean, we can look at Peter and Paul. They were both gifted in preaching. They were both, both gifted in communicating the gospel through written word, but they did it very differently. Same gift, different demonstration of it. Paul was very, or Peter was very rough in how he spoke. I mean, you can study the original language of Peter's writing and Paul's writing, and Paul's very refined, uses very smart words. Peter does not. His words are out of, his sentences are weird sentence structure, his verbs over here, his subjects over there. He uses a very remedial vocabulary. But God used them both with the same gift in different ways because they were one of a kind. They were different. In the same way, he's gifted you in specific ways. He's given you a gift compilation that he hadn't given somebody else. And so we run into a problem when we try to assume we know best how God's going to live out the gifting in somebody else. Let me give you an illustration. We have a toy in our house, as many of you do. The shape toy. Ours is girl colors. And we had this from, from when Hope was, was really little. Uh, and poor Ethan, when he got old enough to use it, he just had to use it. <laughs> so we weren't going to go buy another one. <laughs> um, but you know how it is. You got these little shapes in here. And they, these little shapes, they've designed it so that these shapes can only fit in the slot they were designed to fit in. You would think, like this one, that uh, you could slip it in here, like to this oval, but they designed it so it will only go in the slot that it's meant to go in. I mean, you could force, you could go get a hammer and pound this in there and force it to go in there. But it would either ruin the hole or it would ruin the piece because it wasn't designed to go in that slot. It only functions properly when it's put in the slot it was designed to go in. Even if it looks like another piece, even if you've got a piece that looks like 
another piece in here. It won't fit unless it goes in the slot it was specifically designed to fit in. Because as we saw in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, here and last week in the first part of 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit designed the gift. God arranged it in us to fit in a specific place. And if it doesn't fit in that place, we shouldn't try to force it. If this shape is you, I don't know what you call this shape, pie shape, what do you call it that? Think about food, pie shape, or pizza. Maybe you have big, we, we got pizza the other night, and they cut one of the pieces really huge. And so you, you're pizza shape. You're not going to fit uh, over here in the circle. You're not going to fit there. It won't go. It even looks a little bit like the triangle, but it's not going to fit in the triangle slot. It looks like it. I may think it may go there. I can remember, I mean, Ethan was trying to put this in here at one point until he figured out it's not going to go, and then he found the right slot. It looks similar, but it won't fit until you find the right spot for it to fit in. Your gifting is different than mine. My gifting is different than yours. The person sitting next to you has a different gift than you do. If you have children, they have spiritual gifts. Don't look like them. Let them use their gifts as God designed them to be used and let them fit where they fit, not where you expect them to fit, not where you assume they should fit. Not like somebody who had that gift that you knew that fitted in a certain way. Maybe they're one of a kind and the way they're going to use their gift is different than what you know. Let them fit where God designed them to fit. We should all fit where God designed us to fit. And all the gifts are different. We're going to look at the list now. There are five specific spiritual gift lists in Scripture. Most of them have multiple lists or multiple listed out. Four of the five have been written by Paul. One of them written by Peter. And he only wrote two, so I'll just tell you a, bit, a little bit different about Peter and Paul. But we're going to look at the five now. And now what I'm going to tell you about these lists is all the lists are different, okay? So let's look at them. First one, I think I've got them. Do I have them on there? Okay, good. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Here are, the, here are the spiritual gifts list there. Prophecy, service, teaching, uh, exhorting, which means urging or encouraging, financial giving, leadership, and mercy. Go to the next one. I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, yeah, 8 through 10, the one from uh, last week. Uh, wisdom or speaking, speaking wisdom, uh, speaking knowledge, faith, healing, working miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, various tongues, tongue interpretation. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 through 31, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, administrating. Helping's pretty general there. Maybe, maybe Paul just want to make sure he covered everything. <laughs> helping, uh, administrating, various tongues, tongue interpretation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, before we go to the last one, even though Paul's four lists are all different, they all include all different gifts except one. The only one he mentions in all four lists is prophecy. We don't know why, but he does. And the last one is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. He mentions two, speaking and serving. So that's a whole bunch of spiritual gifts. And what we think is the spiritual gift lists are all different because it's not all of them. We feel that if he was going to list out every single spiritual gift that existed, he would have given us all these lists as the same. But he wrote some to Romans, he wrote some to the Corinthians, he wrote some to the Ephesians, and none of them are the same. And so this is a general idea of the spiritual gifts that exist out there. 
But I want you to, to look, hey, um, jump back to that 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 list. I want to speak real quick to this. That bottom, those bottom two, various tongues and tongue interpretation. Uh, we talked about a little bit about some of these gifts last week, um, that some people are uncomfortable with some of the gifts. Some people are really uncomfortable with tongues. When you start talking about tongues, especially in a Baptist church, uh, Baptists don't speak in tongues. It's, uh, we don't do that. Um, but what we saw last week is that Scripture mentions spiritual gifts like healing and prophecy in tongues, and it never talks about those gifts ever stopping. That Paul uses the language in those gifts in the same way he does all the other gifts. And so if all the other gifts still exist, according to Paul, the way he uses the words, then those still do too. But what do tongues look like? Well, in Acts chapter 2, tongues was known languages that they had not learned that were spoken to people. They were known languages that the disciples had not learned that were spoken to people. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, two chapters over from this, Paul spends a whole chapter talking about this. He writes that tongues is different. It is known languages that you've never learned. It can be that. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about it in a way that it's, a, it's not necessarily a known language. It's a language that can be just spoken to God. And so if we see the demonstration in Acts 2 that it, tongues comes out in a way that it's spoken to people, that it's an unlearned language spoken to people, but in, Acts 4, or in 1 Corinthians 14, it's an unlearned language that's spoken to God, that it comes out in two different forms in the way that it's spoken of in Scripture. Now, again, that's, I know that's making some of you uncomfortable. I can feel it. <laughs> But what the deal is, we cannot interpret Scripture based upon our own comfort level. We have to interpret Scripture by what it says. When we start interpreting Scripture by our own minds and cleverness, even our own experience, we're, we're allowing ourselves to be biblical interpreters rather than Scripture interpreting itself. And if Scripture says it, then we've got to believe it. Otherwise, how can we believe in Jesus if Scripture says in Acts 2, this is what tongues looks like, and in Acts 4, or 1 Corinthians 14, this is what it looks like, who am I to say Scripture's wrong? We can't. Otherwise, that breaks our belief in Jesus at the foundation if Scripture's not right. Scripture's right, even if it makes me uncomfortable sometimes, even if it makes you uncomfortable sometimes. I mean, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about tongues. He says it's a, uh, an unlearned language spoken to God. But he limits how it's supposed to be used. He says it's supposed to be spoken to God and not if there's an not an interpreter present. Because if an unbeliever, Paul, this is an illustration he gives in 1 Corinthians 14. If an unbeliever walks in and the tongue is being spoken and there's no interpreter, they're going to think this is weird and they're going to leave not hearing about Jesus. He's saying it, it is a spiritual gift and it's supposed to be used. Absolutely. And if somebody's got it, they should use it to the full extent that it's used and grow in it and get better at it, but always pointing to Jesus at every opportunity. And so if, if, if talking about speaking in tongues makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, Scripture talks about it, so we've got to talk about it. And that's the two ways Scripture talks about speaking in tongues. Uh, in Acts 2, an unlearned language spoken to other people. In 1 Corinthians 14, it's an unlearned language spoken to God. Paul doesn't say that it has to be a language in existence on the planet Earth. He didn't say that. He says it's an unlearned language spoken to God. And so if somebody is using that, who am I to say they're wrong? 
in their expression. That's me forcing my understanding of spiritual gifts on somebody else. That's me trying to fit them into a hole God did not design them to fit in because it's my comfort level. It's maybe what I had been taught, even though it may not be biblical. What is biblical is what we just said. Acts 2 is biblical just as much as 1 Corinthians 14 is biblical. You can't, I mean, there, there have been church fathers. Martin Luther ripped pages out of his Bible because it made him uncomfortable. Don't do that. He was dead wrong in doing that. If ripping pages out of your Bible makes you feel more comfortable, maybe you need to take those pages and read just those <laughs> and get comfortable with Jesus because he's going to make us uncomfortable. He's going to make us uncomfortable to get us to a better place so we can pursue Jesus in a better way. And so these are the spiritual gifts here. And if you look at those, those gifts, you got them still up to, Okay, good. They're all way different, vastly different. Just the ones he listed, not even talking about other ones. They're, they're, they're phenomenally different. But they're all God-designed. They're all handcrafted. And they're all meant to be used by the people God has brought together. You see, because what we saw in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, is, is when the people started using their gifts in the unique way they were enabled to use them, the church exploded, multiplied, and saw people come to faith that were so anti-Jesus, they voted for him to die. When we begin to use our gifts as God designed us to use them, exceptional things are going to begin to occur. And they're all different, and they're all meant to be used in a different way. You see, because Jesus brings beautiful unity through diversity. Jesus brings beautiful unity through diversity. That's why we're different. He's creative. I mean, you can just see that in creation. Hippos don't look like giraffes. He's phenomenally creative. I never would have thought to give giraffes black tongues or make hippos the size they are and ferocious. I never would have designed all five of my kids to be so incredibly different from each other. But God, in his infinite wisdom and innovation, did. And he doesn't, and C.S. Lewis said, he never does the same thing twice. Never does the same thing the same way twice. We can expect him to do it the way he did it before, but he's not going to do it that way. He brings diversity. And in that diversity comes unity. He brings beautiful unity through diversity, which is like this puzzle I pulled out last week. This Captain America puzzle. I'm not going to be able to find that piece I used last week. But this piece is not like... Oh, there it is. No, it's not the same one, but it's got the little, where is that Band-Aid piece? There was a piece on here last week I had that looked like a Band-Aid. I'm going to have to put this puzzle together this afternoon. But this piece is not like this piece. They're different. They may have, there's a little bit of red on this one, and there's a little bit of red, and there's a lot of red on this one. But they're shaped different. They fit different. And ultimately, they make that picture. I have no idea how. But they're designed by the creator of the puzzle to fit together in a unique way to, to create a bigger picture that I cannot see from just one piece. And when this piece is fulfilling its purpose and fitting where it was designed to fit in the puzzle, it creates the picture it was designed to create. And so when every single person in this church is using the spiritual gifts God's designed and placed within us to use, we're creating a picture that God designed us to create. And we're doing something greater than our individual self can do in our simple display of what we're doing. 
when we're all displaying the gifts God's given us, in the way God designed them to be used, we create something that is phenomenal, that is unified, that is beautiful, that is incredibly powerful in the name of Jesus. Using the gift God designed you to use, how he designed you to use it. Next week, we're going to look. We're going we're to have spiritual gift tests. You can, you can take those. You can use those. We're going to be talking about how you can find out what your gift is. We're going to be talking about what your gifts are. We're going to be talking about that next week. But God is uniquely, you need to know it. He's uniquely designed you in a special way to use your gift in a special way. In a way that nobody else has been designed. Specifically for you to use and fulfill his purpose in you and through you to accomplish something so incredible. Multiplication here in Dequeen, Arkansas. Maybe, maybe you need to begin today to, to not just accept that he has uniquely designed you and that you are one of a kind. Maybe you need to begin to believe today that he died for you and he rose for you and you can accept salvation right now. Maybe you need to believe that Jesus is God's son and he died so all your sins would be forgiven and that you can live forever after you die if you believe in him today. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you watching online. You need to believe right now. Hit, send me a, a private message. I'll see it on my phone here in just a second. Right now, if you need to know Jesus. If you're in the room and you need to know Jesus, now is your time. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Embrace who he designed you to be. And what, what, what we learn in Scripture is the moment we get saved, we receive God's Holy Spirit. And what we saw last week is when God's Holy Spirit comes to you, he brings spiritual gifts. Whether you're saved at 7, whether you're saved at 97, you gain spiritual gifts in that moment meant to be used for the advancement, the advantage of God's church in the greater glory that he has here on earth. And so it's time now to believe in that. Believe in Jesus, accept your giftedness, and let's step in unity together through where he has placed us to accomplish what he has placed us here to accomplish. Use your spiritual gift in great power, whatever it may be. And let's see what God can do together as we use them together.